back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you news this week from Canada, Switzerland, Argentina, and the United States. I will be closing out with a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead right-winger from Portugal. I'm going to start out this week with Canada. This is a correction. I want to note that the so-called Queen of Canada, who purports to be the legitimate monarch of Canada and not King Charles III. Now, this is a sort of COVID conspiracy, anti-government, like, you know, 5G conspiracy theorist type person. She is not, as I had previously said in a different episode, an indigenous person from Canada. She is actually Filipina. Thank you to a listener for issuing this correction to me. You can always reach out to me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com to let me know if I've made a mistake. Moving on to Switzerland, the Swiss People's Party, quote-unquote, wins the Swiss parliamentary election. Now, this doesn't mean exactly what it might sound like it means if you're from the United States or from the United Kingdom or from any other country where, you know, usually one party really takes power when there's an election. Switzerland is a coalition country. So that means that the Swiss People's Party is the biggest party in the country, not that they are the only party that is governing. However, it is a cause for alarm. The Swiss People's Party is a right-wing party. It is anti-immigration. It is indifferent to climate change, especially compared to the Swiss Green parties that fared very poorly in this particular election cycle. And the Swiss People's Party is also opposed to rising healthcare costs, which they partly blame on immigrants coming to Switzerland. This is a reminder that although Switzerland is usually lauded as being a, you know, very functional and very accepting or at least you know very like rules and law abiding place it like everywhere is not immune to the rise of the extreme right wing the swiss people's party is an old party in switzerland it's been around for quite some time however it has not been faring well recently this victory is the sign of an upswing and it's a sign of the continued and increasing power of the extreme right wing in europe broadly Moving on to Argentina, Argentina also had an election very recently. This is one that I flagged for you last week. This was the first round of the Argentine presidential election and also the final round of their legislative election. The three main candidates and coalitions that were coming to a head in this election were as follows. The ruling party, the Peronists, which were headed as the presidential candidate in this case by a guy named Massa. The Peronists are a sort of center-left-ish coalition. They have their legacy in the dictatorship and then presidency of Juan Perón, the former president of Argentina. Juan Perón was, perhaps more famously in the United States, the husband of Eva Perón. Now, Massa himself is a centrist in a center-left coalition, making him a sort of like right-wing-ish Peronist. The Peronists faced the... Uh, presidential candidacy of Patricia Bullrich, who was the leader of a neoliberal coalition. This coalition was partly her party, which had previously held the presidency under Mauricio Macri, and the sort of classically liberal party in Argentina, the radicales, the, the radicals. The third candidate for presidency and the third big electoral coalition and power coming into this election was headed by a guy named Javier Milei, and this party is called Libertad Avanza, so Liberty Advances. 
Millet is an insurgent far-right slash libertarian candidate. He describes himself as a minarchist, as in he believes that government should be as limited as is practically possible, so that the government should essentially provide only security forces and that it should run certain forms of regulation that only a government could run, you know, like record keeping, stuff like that, and possibly not even some of that stuff. Now, Millet was expected to come out ahead in this election because he did extremely well in the primary. However, the results were a little bit of an upset. Massa, the Peronists, won the top spot in the presidential election with a little bit over 35%. Behind him was Millet with a little bit over 30%, and behind him was Bullrich with about the same but with a little bit less support. The remaining candidates and parties got about 10% of the vote, which means that now the problem is how do either Massa or Millet accumulate enough people to win the majority spot, to win the second round of voting, which is going to be coming out in November. Right now, like currently this week, there are negotiations between Bullrich's candidacy and her coalition and Millet to see if they're going to officially back Millet or if they're going to stand back and just allow their voters to pick whomever they want. I doubt that they're going to do that because Bullrich and the former president of Argentina, Mauricio Macri, they hate the Peronists, so they probably don't want the Peronists to win. But at the same time, their coalition partners, the Radicales, might not want Millet because the radicals are not like actually radical. They were radical in the early 20th century when they proposed universal suffrage. Uh, that's kind of where their radicalness, quote unquote, comes from. So this is a this, this is a real question. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's possible that a centrist Peronist candidate is going to win and that that will be the next governing coalition in Argentina. But it's also possible that Argentina is about to embark on an experiment in governance unlike any other that most other Western countries have experienced, or at least that they've done kind of like on purpose, you know, because the, because they've elected somebody who says, like, I'm going to eliminate the healthcare and education system. You know, usually that is forced upon countries by, say, the World Bank or something like that. Finally, want to note that Millet and his supporters are taking a page from the Trump and Bolsonaro playbook and saying that this election was stolen from them. You know, they say that Millet definitely for sure got first place and that he only didn't win because the votes weren't counted correctly or that there was, you know, foul play within the vote counting system. Pretty standard stuff. Moving on to the United States, there is now news, this is a report from Rolling Stone, that Peter Thiel, the tech billionaire and really important figure in funding far-right candidacies in the United States, these are people from Donald Trump to J.D. Vance, a senator from Ohio, Peter Thiel is and was an FBI informant. Exactly what he was informing the FBI on remains unknown. Supposedly, it didn't really have to do with political stuff, but who knows? Um, Thiel has been an important figure cementing and connecting the moneyed interests of the extreme right wing with the political interests of the extreme right wing, especially as they connect to technology and to Silicon Valley in general. Uh, this is an extremely interesting piece of information. And uh, I, I really wonder exactly what is going to make people think about Teal in extreme right-wing circles. Continuing on with the United States, finally, 
the United States has a Speaker of the House. I've been talking about this for several weeks, and so have many other news sources. The United States has been without a Speaker of the House for several weeks after the ouster of Kevin McCarthy on behalf of many of the extreme right-wing Republicans in the United States Republican Party. Since we last spoke, Jim Jordan, who is a far right-wing Republican congressperson, tried to get the speakership another time and failed. Another candidate was then offered but was rescinded just several hours later, you know, quite embarrassing for the Republican Party, and it seemed like they were going to have a really hard time filling the spot. Finally, a new candidate emerged and won the vote. His name is Mike Johnson, and he is a congressperson from the state of Louisiana. Now, Johnson has occasionally been presented in the news as a compromise candidate, as a moderate. That is not true. Johnson is just a less publicly known extreme right-wing Republican compared to somebody like Jim Jordan, who has been making headlines for being quasi-fascist for several years. Mike Johnson is, in fact, extremely right-wing. He was deeply involved in Donald Trump's effort to deny Joe Biden the 2020 electoral victory. He was deeply involved in plans to figure out how exactly Congress could not accept Biden's victory and accept Biden's electoral votes. Johnson's politics are also just generally very conservative. He's an extreme religious conservative, which in the United States means that he's an extreme Christian religious conservative. He is opposed to abortion access as healthcare and thinks that abortion is murder. Johnson is opposed to the legalization of homosexual marriage, which is something that mainstream Republicans are more or less okay with, or at least have been in the last several years. That is changing now. Johnson isn't just not okay with homosexual marriage. Johnson is not okay with homosexuality, period. Like, he criticizes the existence and practice of homosexuality as a form of human sexuality and as a form of love. His victory as Speaker of the House is a massive success for the extreme right wing of the Republican Party in the United States, even though it might be being played as a moderate victory, you know, as a way to keep Jim Jordan out of the seat. As a reminder, this means that Mike Johnson is now the third in line for the presidency of the United States. After Joe Biden is Kamala Harris, and after that is the Speaker of the House, this guy, Mike Johnson. Moving on to Trump's legal woes, little tidbit, Donald Trump has violated his gag order. This was issued by a judge in New York State and New York City, specifically regarding the civil suit against him there, regarding his having lied about his business practices. He was fined $10,000, essentially nothing in terms of how much money Donald Trump has control over. Moving on to other Donald Trump cases, more and more people have been working with federal prosecutors against Donald Trump. And this is some stuff that could actually eventually come to bite him in the ass. But the timelines here are getting so long. It's just extremely frustrating to see this taking so long when other countries are moving on this pretty, pretty heavily, right? Uh, Bolsonaro attempted his coup in January of this year, and he is already giving testimony and is already being talked to by the police like any other criminal. Meanwhile, in the United States, Donald Trump is already running for president again. Anyway, people are turning on him in these cases. The most recent and probably most damning for him is Mark Meadows, formerly his chief of staff and his chief of staff during Donald Trump's attempted coup on January 6th, 2021. Now, Meadows had been a pretty staunch Trump ally, but is said to have testified before a federal grand jury in exchange for immunity 
in the Department of Justice case on this electoral interference that he and Donald Trump were running together. Specifically, this immunity and his testimony relate to Meadows having arranged a call between Donald Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, in which Donald Trump asked the Secretary of State of Georgia to, quote, find, end quote, enough votes to get Donald Trump the victory in that state, which was pretty vital for his electoral college prospects in the 2020 election. Now, this is pretty clear election tampering, right? And this is Meadows apparently saying like, yeah, I'm just going to go on record and say that Donald Trump did this. Uh, and that could be case closed, maybe in a couple years. It's extremely frustrating that it's taking that long. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about Marcelo Caetano, the final leader of the Estado Novo, the dictatorial regime in Portugal in the 20th century. Caetano was born in 1906 to a well-off family. He studied law and eventually became a law professor at the University of Lisbon. He was well-known as a conservative and a reactionary when it came to his legal theories. He entered politics relatively young in the 1930s during the early days of the dictatorship, known as the Estado Novo, which was run by, also incidentally, a former professor, Salazar, who ruled the country as an authoritarian leader who was not exactly fascist, but was sort of fascophilic, right? He was affiliated with and kind of sympathetic to some of the fascist regimes at the time and in the region. One of the main differences is that the Estado Novo did not try to mobilize mass support. It suppressed mass support for people. You know, it didn't want people being in the streets and like being organized and stuff like that. Caetano was involved in some of this control over popular mobilization. For example, one of his early big important positions was being the head of the Portuguese Youth Organization, a compulsory sort of quasi Hitler youth type thing although Caetano specifically was in charge of moderating it post-war so that it appeared to be less fascist. He then rode this to the control of other ministries in the Estado Novo, including the Minister of the Colonies. Portugal was maintaining several African and Chinese colonies at the time, and he was also the leader of Portugal's only legal political party. He was eventually chosen by the president of Portugal to replace Salazar after Salazar suffered a stroke in 1968 and was unable to continue holding office. Caetano did some moves towards moderating the dictatorship, and also some moves in the direction of normative capitalism and trying to secure foreign investment, not unlike the regime of Francisco Franco at exactly the same time. He was less powerful than Salazar had been, partly because he did not create the state that he was running, but he still engaged in some serious political repression in the only quote-unquote elections that he stood in. You know, he was not a Democrat. Eventually, Caetano and the Estado Novo were done in by the legacy of the regime's own suppression of people's rights and privileges, and also the growing anti-colonial unrest in Portugal's African colonies in Angola and Mozambique. These were repressed violently by the Estado Novo throughout the 20th century, but that violence eventually succeeded in achieving their independence against Portugal. That violence then also spread into Portugal itself, where the Estado Novo and Caetano were overthrown in the Carnation Revolution, a very rare, essentially okay, even potentially good, military coup. After he was forced by the military to resign from his position as prime minister, 
Caetano was evacuated to the Azores, uh, which is a Portuguese territory in the Atlantic, and eventually he settled into exile in Brazil. Brazil was, at the time, under its own military dictatorship in the 1970s. Caetano remained there until his death, publishing memoirs and law books, which were relatively successful and relatively well-read. Marcelo Caetano died in Rio de Janeiro today in history, the 26th of October, 1980, of a heart attack. So, Marcelo Caetano, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Tell friends, family, and comrades about it. Don't go to my Patreon. Instead, check out Medicine Sans Frontières, that is Doctors Without Borders in English, or the Red Cross or the Red Crescent, and donate money there due to continuing humanitarian crises. You can check out my Twitter at Hist of the Right. That's H-I-S-T of the Right. And I'm also on Twitter at Fascism15. My Gmail is 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. And my blue sky is 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. That's 15 Mins of Fash. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.